Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I am so excited to be here for this episode with Dr. Lee Dibble from the University of Utah. And Lee, I'm going to let you uh, quickly introduce yourself to our audience. Thanks, Parm. Thanks for asking me to take part. Uh, I am currently a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Athletic Training at the University of Utah. I got a PT uh, degree, a master's degree in PT at Duke University uh, many years ago, uh, more than I want to mention. And, uh, and then I uh, received a PhD here in motor learning and motor control at the University of Utah and stayed on as faculty here for a number of years. We uh, uh, have a balance clinic, a balance and mobility clinic that we run within our department. Uh, that focuses on people with degenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis, as well as individuals with uh, vestibular disorders. So definitely focusing on balance and postural control. And my research has predominantly been over uh, the past uh, 15 to 20 years on individuals with balance problems, uh, uh, predominantly Parkinson's disease, but definitely branching out into those other diagnoses also. Cool. And, and so we're excited to have you here to talk about some of that stuff specifically. I'd like to start by um, chatting about motor learning. I think that as physical therapists, it's really, it's what we do, right? We teach people how to move or movement strategies or changing um, different strategies. And we're, we really are doing motor learning. And, and I think that that a lot of clinicians out there understand the concepts about what we talk about, but some of the terminology um, can get confusing or um, sort of difficult to keep track of. And so I wanted to kind of start there and talk about just general motor learning, if that's okay. Sounds great. We always try to sell it like in our grants that uh, rehabilitation, especially within the context of neurologic disorders, uh, it, it is uh, motor learning is critical. It is the thing that we are trying to do, uh, and so we can't avoid thinking about it. Uh, you shouldn't get kind of. We tell our students you shouldn't get bound to thinking just about the periphery, about muscular strength or range of motion or aerobic fitness. That there is a skill acquisition component that resides within the central nervous system that we have to consider, especially in the context of neurologic disorders. And then degenerative diseases on another level uh, add an additional level of challenge in the sense that it's not a static acquired injury that maybe a stroke is, hopefully assuming they don't have another stroke. We have a, a changing system uh, in the context of something like Parkinson's disease that unfortunately affects the, uh, the very kind of one of the very neurologic centers that helps with implicit learning. 
Right. And, and I think that's a great point. I think we'll, we'll get there. I just wanted to <laughs> talk about one other thing yeah. about motor learning and implicit learning in terms of what, like, what do we do or what can we do to promote that kind of learning in our patients? Uh, it's pretty clear from the research and probably clinical practice that we've seen that practice, the amount of practice is the single most important variable that influences what is learned. But uh, assuming that we kind of uh, set aside that there's a, a sufficient amount of practice, then there, there are definitely some issues that, that are kind of pre-practice or uh, issues like, like choosing the task. Uh, you were talk, talking about attention. I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking uh, of another term, like how salient, how meaningful is the task to that individual. Uh, right. One of our frustrations and uh, that has driven our choice of tasks within our research is that some of the motor learning tasks that have historically been done for Parkinson's disease involve upper extremities in a seated position, not posturally demanding uh, tasks that that are internally valid from a research standpoint, but don't have a lot of um, ecological validity and relevance to how a person might function in their everyday life. So we've chosen to try to do balanced tasks. There's a group with Alice Neubauer that, uh, that they do uh, upper extremity tasks, but they're looking at handwriting, something that's very relevant to what a person has to do in their everyday life. So I think of the uh, finding tasks that are extremely relevant to the individual that they have a they have some involvement in choosing the task of what they're performing within your, the rehabilitation so then they're more invested attentive and potentially motivated by right. uh by the activities that you're doing yeah like it has to be a goal that they're interested in right and the you know the sort of classic example of like moving a cone from one side of the table to the other like who cares? You know, right. Whoever does that in real life. But, you know, if I'm picking up my, my mug of beer and bringing it to my face, I might be a little bit more motivated. Or a glass of wine, I'm just yeah. saying. You know, or a cup of coffee. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so, you know, you, you've talked a little bit about in the setting of a neurodegenerative disease, particularly something like Parkinson's, where though those deeper brain structures that are affected of the basal ganglia are actually also implicated in motor learning. And so sort of a big general question is, does motor learning occur in people with Parkinson's? Yes, I, I, it's a qualified yes uh, and it's an answer to your question. I mean, the studies that have been done, so speaking from a research standpoint, uh, studies that have been, that have been done uh, predominantly test people early on in the, uh, in the disease, hone in yard one to three. So um, the assumption there is that the degeneration of the basal ganglia has not proceeded to uh, a sufficient degree that it would com completely impair uh, the motor learning ability. Uh, I can't think of a lot of studies that have really included people, say at hone in yard three, four, and uh, five, it would be extremely difficult. So it's more difficult to give an answer about those more moderate to severe levels of disease. Um, the studies that we've done uh, and uh, many other studies uh, by others have kind of shown that if you compare to controls, 
uh, people with Parkinson's disease will have a lower level of initial performance, as you might expect, given bradykinesia, uh, hypokinesia, uh, rigidity, other, other kind of complicating factors. But they do uh, progress uh, in their skill. They improve in their, uh, in their skill acquisition. They retain some of the same skills. However, they may not uh, achieve the same level of function that a non-neurologically impaired or a neurotypical individual might. Um, but interestingly, in some cases, like uh, one of our first uh, studies on uh, postural motor learning, the individuals with Parkinson's disease in increased more uh, because, uh, because I think they had more space to gain skill. The individuals without Parkinson's disease increased a little bit, but they were kind of out of a ceiling in terms of their performance abilities. But there was a lot of room for the person with Parkinson's disease to gain skill uh, as part of their, uh, of their practice. All right. So, so in terms of um, specific activities, right, you, you've looked predominantly at balance tasks. We have um, a, a variety of balance tasks uh, because of the equipment that we had available. Our, our, one of our initial forays was in looking using a limits of stability task on the balance master. Uh, so we did that. Uh, more recently, we've done some uh, testing using a kind of lower extremity variation of a continuous tracking task where, um, where there's a cursor moving along the screen and kind of a a sine wave that has some random and repeat and repeating sequences, and the person has to move their center of pressure to track that uh, uh, that kind of weight shift in an anterior posterior direction. And then we've also more recently uh, utilized a, another serial kind of or sequence learning task, but a serial reaction time task that probably would be better known as kind of a a really boring dance dance revolution. So oh, fun. no music, no sensory cueing, but it looks kind of the same. So we, we take the Dance Dance Revolution and we make it much less fun. I know. Well, bummer. Have you thought about using music with it? Uh, maybe, but I mean, it would certainly, con uh, from a research standpoint, it would confound kind of the sensory cueing effect would maybe confound the learning stuff that we're interested in. I think it might be interesting to make, right. have two groups, one that practices the same task with uh, some kind of music and, and uh, external auditory cueing, and then have one group to practice without and see if the, the cueing actually improved the function. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So, so you, you have found that people with Parkinson's are still able to learn new tasks, but they learn them a little differently or a little bit slower. So what does that mean in terms of number of repetitions that a clinician may want to do in a physical therapy session. Yeah, I mean, I uh, kind of restrained myself from saying this earlier when we were talking about kind of motor learning being the basis, is that uh, I think as physical therapists in our educational settings, we learn really good things, the, the correct things about exercise physiology and about motor learning. And then we go out into clinical practice and the realities of clinical practice with time pressures and, and other things uh, bias us towards uh, underdosing individuals. I would say from an exercise physiology standpoint, resistance training, things like that, but certainly from a practice repetition standpoint. Um, I mean, in all of our daily lives, we 
practice activities, things that we like to do on the weekends or things like that, we don't stop when we gain a level, a threshold level of skill. We continue to practice. We continue to over-practice. And that's, what's, that's what helps us kind of uh, solidify and retain that skill even after long periods of no practice. That mm -hmm. is, that comes nowhere close to what we do in clinical rehabilitation practice. I can say for our therapists or, or when we do balance retraining that oftentimes given the number of things to work on, we practice, oh, you, you're, you got there. You did what we want you to do. Okay, we're going to move on to something else. Right. Yeah, yeah, you can't stop, really. I right. mean, it's why we can get on our skis every winter and right. do as well as we do because we're going out there for eight hours a day right. for, you know, 15, 20 days in the winter. I mean, the ideal, I think, from a clinical practice standpoint would be to have the person gain a requisite level of skill that they were safe if we're talking about balance tasks. And then everyday life becomes the accumulation of repetitions. I don't think it's realistic from a clinical standpoint to be able to keep people and get the sheer number or sheer volume of practice repetitions that would allow, I say a person with Parkinson's disease and maybe a slower rate of learning to get to the kind of level that we want but we have to try to do enough to, to get a person to at least uh, a requisite level of skill and then some over-practice, I think. Right, so I think that that's a great point that sort of um, warrants some reiteration in terms of like, so what you're talking about really is that as physical therapists, we're working, helping people with this skill acquisition and helping them to realize that that this is an everyday thing or close to everyday thing, probably for the rest of your life. Right. So, so it's a behavior change. So when you're doing your exercises, you're starting to have some balance difficulty. We're adding in this balance exercise, and this has got to be something that is in your repertoire that you're doing regularly. And as it becomes easy, we're going to figure out how to make it slightly harder and slightly harder right. so that, you know, you're increasing the challenge, but it's something that you're going to have to do right. going forward. And, and so, so for somebody with Parkinson's, like the, my sort of takeaway from what you've been saying and the examples that you've been giving, given is that, you know, if I'm seeing, say, a healthy elder that is, has a fall risk, and I'm trying to give them potentially a variety of exercises to target maybe a variety of different sort of areas of deficit that I'm seeing. Somebody with Parkinson's, I might want to dial back and that say the number or the breadth of the exercise, really identify, you know, what is going to help them the most and then get them to really practice that and keep practicing it over and over. And then once they attain that skill, then I'm going to maybe jump into something different. Yeah, I mean, I think you certainly have to look at the uh, capabilities uh, that that one person may have. I don't want to suggest that you just do blocked practice, like, right, and not uh, and non-variable practice where you're just doing one thing before you and master it before you move to the next, because that certainly is not conducive to to kind of uh, learning and generalization of the skills. But but I, I do agree that something has to give. 
if you if you ch uh, choose to be a, a mile wide and an inch deep in terms of all the tasks that you're practicing, you can't by by uh, by virtue of the time you have practice enough of a particular maybe problematic task. So you got to spend more time on that. Right. No, I think that's a great analogy. I like that mile wide and inch deep because I think that sometimes we try to do that. Right. You know, and one of the uh, geniuses of like something like dance or boxing um, as a potential intervention, maybe not delivered within a, an insurance reimbursed setting, but something for individuals with Parkinson's disease that seems to have some kind of contemporary kind of attraction is that dance you know, you're having rotation, you're having steps. So you're having to do anticipatory reactive postural control. You're potentially having to do some reactive postural control if you lose your balance. There's music present. So there may be some external sensory cueing. Hopefully there's an able-bodied uh, individual that's guarding in a certain way, um, or at least partnering. So, uh, and there may be some kind of implicit learning that they don't actually think that they're working on their balance but they are boxing, you know, higher velocity movements, uh, maybe doing things to try to restrain, make sure that you don't lose your balance. You restrain your center of mass within your base of support as you're trying to hit a bag and, and have to absorb the recoil. Uh, so I think that there are some kind of nice things about some of those popular, uh, currently popular um, community exercise programs that really speak to allowing the person to gain some repetitions in uh, in balance related tasks. Yeah. And in a safe way. I mean, right. I think that's the other thing is when people are supported in their exercise, then they're willing to push themselves. But it also speaks way. to your motivation and kind of attention too, that if they don't realize that they're practicing, they're with a cohort of people that they enjoy spending time with. They don't see it as therapy. Uh, that may, that may allow them to kind of, uh, feel much more engaged in the, uh, in the, that they're doing something actively involved for themselves in, in management of the disease. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. And I know that, you know, those programs are getting popular for a reason. I think people, you know, are, are feeling the benefits. We're starting to see it in some of the research that's happening. Right. Certainly anecdotally, when you talk to people, I mean, they're, they're highly supportive of them and, sort of right. consider a lot of those programs like a lifeline for them. You know, and I, here's where I struggle a little bit with kind of the, uh, the push for evidence-based practice. I think that it would be very difficult to control uh, every specific detail of a boxing program uh, to the extent that you needed to, to do some sort of randomized clinical trial uh, for this, uh, for that intervention. Mm-hmm. There may be ways to do it, but it would take some of the spontaneity and the pragmatism out of uh, doing that. I can certainly speak to the, the anecdotal uh, of positive effects that we've seen within our patients uh, that they're so much more engaged rather than just coming in and walking on the treadmill and, and lifting weights and stretching. They're uh, so much more engaged. Yeah, yeah, it's totally fabulous. And, and um, I agree. I think that you're right. Sometimes we can get hung up on that needing evidence for certain things. And also one of the benefits I think for a lot of those programs is that you you can't, um, can't control for everything, 
I think a lot of those programs really increase people's self-efficacy and the and generally the way that they feel. So they become more physically active outside the program. Because the reality is if they're going to a class like that for twice a week for an hour, I mean, that's only two hours of exercise. It's really for any of us, not a lot to show a big difference, but they, we are seeing some differences in those people. And I think a lot of it is because they they feel good. And like all of a sudden they're realizing, well, I can go for a two mile walk on my off days with my spouse, even though before they weren't doing that. And, and, and how do you control for that? And do we really even want to, right? We want people to be doing that. So we're not going to tell somebody like, sit on your nope. couch, except for these two hours of, of, nope. you know, whatever yeah. intervention we're giving you. Right. Hey, yeah, I, somehow, I don't think IRB would approve that. Uh, there's two other things I wanted to kind of uh, bring up while, before they before I forget them. Really, um, was uh, there's been some kind of uh, talk about the in, influence of medications on this kind of overall motor learning ability. There was some kind of uh, publications that really talked about what they call the dopamine overdose hypothesis that mm-hmm. early in the disease process, the area that was degenerating. Uh, to create motor abnormalities uh, was different than the part of the uh, part of the basal ganglia that's responsible for kind of starting uh, motor uh, implicit learning uh, by giving dopamine replacement medication, aka Cinemet. Um, they uh, that you potentially overdose the area of the brain that's really not diseased yet, and therefore could impair uh, some aspects of motor learning. This didn't really make sense to us. Uh, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree that it doesn't happen, but I don't know, we didn't know if it was clinically relevant. So the, some of our most recent studies have looked at um, uh, randomly assigning people to train in these motor learning tasks on and off the medication, try to uh, tackle whether or not uh, there was a dopamine overdose kind of deficit uh, produced in motor learning. And we really found that there was not. I'm going to kind of explain that further, saying that the effects of being off medication, fatigue, bradykinesia, hypokinesia, um, were so profound for these individuals that it degraded their performance and really uh, frustrated them and also made it difficult for them to accumulate the number of practice trials that they needed to, to actually gain the skill. So there may be some subtle cognitive deficits associated with the dopamine overdose that, assuming everything else didn't happen, there could be a little bit of a deficit. But the, the sheer benefits of being on medication in terms of redu- reducing bradykinesia, reducing hypokinesia, reducing rigidity, and allowing the person to not be fatigued far outweighed any subtle benefit, subtle deficit. So did you actually find, did you find that they actually did the same in terms of motor learning, whether they were on or off medication or they did better on medication? They did better on medication. And right. And you're attributing that to the, the, they had a better motor ability when they were on medication and that allowed them to get a more robust practice session. Yeah. I mean, we, we controlled the amount of practice, so they, they all have the same amount of practice, but it, the practice was much more difficult and less efficient in those off-medication individuals. 
And we had no way of quantifying the kind of frustration that they were feeling, but it was mm -hmm. very evident uh, that, that they were struggling because of being off medication. Mm -hmm. And were these studies, are they done in the same individuals on and off, or did you have two completely different cohorts? We've done that a couple of different ways. This last way, we, uh, they were different cohorts. We got a group of Parkinson's patients and we randomly assigned them to either train on or off. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, sorry, what kind of um, numbers are you talking about in terms of like your end number? Uh, I think the the lower extremity one was like 28. So there was 14, uh, 13 or 14 in each group. I mean, so it certainly could be powered uh, uh, more highly, but we, we found kind of uh, significant results, statistically significant results on our, um, on our primary outcomes. Um, I mean, I think there are some more subtle differences in secondary outcomes that we'd be interested in kind of chasing down a bit more, and we'd certainly need more people for that. Mm -hmm. Great. So the other thing I wanted to bring up before I forgot was this uh, kind of clinically relevant thing of generalization, like uh, that you brought up the point about practicing specific tasks. Well, one of the challenges in motor learning, whether you're talking about balance and postural control or upper extremity motor learning or other tasks is how much of what you practice transfers or generalizes to similar tasks. And uh, that's a, I think that's a kind of critical issue that we don't really have a good handle on um, in Parkinson's disease or frankly in other kind of areas because we don't know what specific characteristics are going to allow me practicing a particular balance task and have that transfer to another one. Mm -hmm. So a lot you, of the, oh, I'm uh, sorry. I can keep that some of our tasks have not transferred like that dance dance revolution task that we did. We used the four, uh, four square step test thinking, mm -hmm. okay, well, they've been doing stepping and dance dance revolution. We, we thought we might see transfer. There wasn't any, uh, Dan Peterson is a researcher at Arizona state university. Who's done some with, in conjunction with Faye Horak, some reactive stepping assessments, and they did anterior and posterior um, reactive stepping using a sliding force plate. Uh, unfortunately, that did not translate to lateral stepping behaviors. Right. And do have you? Do you guys also do reactive stepping we activities? Do. And how how do you do it? Uh, so from an experimental standpoint, we, uh, we have what we call a uh, tether release paradigm. We have them put like a climbing harness on and they're attached to a tether. Uh, when we're doing posterior uh, uh, reactive steps, they're attached to a tether in front of them, an electromagnet on the wall. And we can release, uh, after they lean back enough like you would for a push and release test, you release the electromagnet and they have to take a step to catch themselves from falling. IRB requires us to have them kind of harnessed to the ceiling also. But right, I was going to ask that question. <laughs> okay. And, and what about, um, so have, have you found or have you had a way of looking at with that kind of training, do people get better, do, do people's balance improve or a reactive stepping T you know, test sort of like you might see on the mini best test. Is there change in that item? Um, we have not done that in Parkinson's. We just recently did that with MS. Um, Dan Peterson at Arizona State and, and I uh, and a couple of others have funding from the Michael J. Fox Foundation to do more kind of uh, specific 
reactive postural assessments uh, and practice, like a two-week practice bout of, uh, of these reactive stepping uh, responses with Parkinson's patients to see if we can kind of tease out uh, if, um, if there is, um, uh, if we do it in a more kind of clinically relevant and approachable way, can the people experience benefits? And what did you find in the people with MS? Uh, that they did acquire the skill, but uh, what we were very, it was kind of very early stages. We had them practice uh, uh, about 35 or 40 repetitions within one day and then come back the next day for, uh, for retention. We did not have a longer term outcome. Those studies are kind of currently ongoing. Okay, so this, this actually leads me to two questions. Um, what, so you, you looked at retention being one day. So do we, what do we think about, is that true motor learning? If they came back a week or two weeks or a month later, would you expect the same? I, I don't, I, I think it does depend on practice dose, but I don't think so. I don't think they'd retain that. Um, so, I mean, some motor learning studies have called learning uh, or doc, or a, operationally defined learning as uh, the skill change that occurred five minutes after practice. So the same day that they started the skill. To me, that's not clinically relevant whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I still, we've done it at 24 hours. Uh, that still, I think, is kind of um, slightly better, but not really clinically relevant. Right. A week, I think, or a month later it, are, are much more relevant to what we need to do in the clinic. So right. I think that there's, um, I mean, there's a variety of ways I think that we could try to assess retention better. That would be longer retention periods. I also think that you could use dual tasking as a probe for have they, if they've acquired the skill in an implicit way and it's becoming more automatic, there should be less of a dual task cost. Oh, that's interesting. That's, yeah, that's a great idea. I really so, like that. And so, so you would have to, in theory, test the dual task activity prior to the practice, yep. provide that practice on whatever, you know, schedule you're going to provide and then test that dual task again. Yeah. 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 I like it. Um, so sort of leads to uh, this, my second question, which is, do you have a suggestion of how to train reactive postural control in a clinical setting? And do you think it's beneficial for, you know, either people with Parkinson's or MS or do we not know yet? Uh, to answer the second part of your question first, I think definitely it's beneficial. Uh, again, my clinical experience and our research experience does uh, focus on people earlier in the disease process. Um, and that's cutting across uh, motor phenotypes in the sense that we're not talking about just people with like, maybe the freezing of gait kind of presentation. So I think there are some things that uh, that would still need to be teased out. Uh, it appears that the like freezing of gait kind of predominant individuals may have some altered kind of motor learning kind of capabilities. But I do think that practicing reactive postural uh, uh, responses is would be a, it is a critical element. One of the ways that we've uh, done it sometimes in um, in the clinic, uh, I don't know if you have these. We used to call them sport cords. They're a um, 
kind of a surgical tubing, kind of different resistances. They have yeah. a belt. You could lamp, put them around a, a sturdy structure in the clinic. You can put a belt on and the person can walk forwards or backwards or sideways. Um, so we really liked them because they were uh, functional lower extremity strengthening. They, had, they were getting some kind of destabilizing force on them. So they had to do anticipatory stepping, uh, kind of appropriate amplitude anticipatory responses to take steps without losing their balance. And if they happen to lose their balance, um, they, they practice a reactive step. Mm -hmm. So then you were kind of doing a little bit of all of those things. Mm -hmm. Are you diluting the practice uh, on reactive steps? Probably. Right. But um, I think that uh, you do get strange looks from your uh, clinical colleagues if you're regularly pushing your patients off balance. Yeah. Step. But I think it, uh, something like that in a kind of somewhat safe environment is probably critical. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of people doing that. I worked in a clinic where we actually had a treadmill. Uh -huh. We'd have people harnessed in and it would do slips and trips. Right. No, I think and that's a great one. Like if you can change the acceleration uh, parameters faster or stopping quickly enough, then you, you do some uh, slips and trips. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's an option. I just, I'm not sure how widely available those types of instruments are. You know, I mean, what a, another challenge that we spend some time thinking about is, um, and it kind of comes from our relationship with uh, kind of doing some vestibular stuff also, is uh, it's pretty clear, like when you're trying to tr train gaze stability, that the air signal is probably, is at least in part, uh, uh, retinal slip. The image that you're interested in uh, slips off the retina and you have to try to do something centrally to get the eye back on target. Maybe you get change the gain if you have that capability, you have, or you change the saccade somehow to get the eye back on target. What we don't have a good handle on is what is the relevant air signal that we should be training from a postural control standpoint and a postural stability standpoint. Um, we we've thought about it, we haven't come up with any answers. So if we could get a better sense of what that would be, then we'd have a better sense of how to of what we should train. Uh, so is it that you need to force the center of mass outside of the base of support 50 times? And that's kind of, that's that uh, center of mass slip that, uh, that is uh, necessary. Uh, and that's what helps a person gain skill. Because you need to make them ha uh, have errors in their performance to learn what to do. But we don't have a really good sense of what that error should be. We kind of, we kind of make a, a swag at it, but, um, but we don't know that for sure. Yeah, and having a safe way to sort of play with that error right. is, is challenging for sure. Right. Well, I think that's a, I mean, any balance patient, whether it's Parkinson's or anybody, I find that hard um, from a home exercise program standpoint, because the thing I want them to do is lose their balance to practice and get better. The thing I don't want them to do is fall at home with the exercises that I've given them to do. Very narrow margin between those two. Right. Yeah, and also, you know, then all, to some extent, the kind of strategy that they're using when they are losing their balance. Like, you know, we don't necessarily want to train a hip strategy. Right. So there's a lot of education that kind of has to happen 
when you're giving people those balance exercises to work on at home. Right. I mean, it kind of relates to understanding what the air signal is. Um, I don't think we do enough repetitions of the challenging components of balance tasks. For example, uh, like losing the balance. How many times in clinical practice, how many repetitions of losing their balance if you're doing a walking task out on the uh, on a kind of uneven surface? How many repetitions of losing their balance do they get? Not a ton, at least in our clinical practice. Another kind of variation I don't think we practice very often is the transition between sensory environments. So I think people have gotten better at having people practice on compliant surfaces and have, uh, having people practice with eyes open and eyes closed, uh, changing the sensory environment or moving the head. But how many times do we transition between sensory environments? Like how many, again, I could speak for my, our clinical practice that we step, the person step on the Airx mat, uh, mat or, or a uh, gymnastics mat and then practice controlling their sway or moving around on that mat. But they stepped on and then they stepped off. So they have two repetitions of transitioning between a compliant surface and a solid surface. Or we have them open their eye, we have them close their eyes and balance with their eyes closed. And then we have them open their eyes. So they got two transitions of alterations in visual function. Right. And there are some clear indications that, uh, that one of the deficits in Parkinson's disease is uh, some alterations in sensory integration and maybe some kind of misinterpretation of proprioceptive information. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems relevant clinically that we should be trying to do some of the training of kind of transitions between different sensory environments that might allow them to hopefully interpret uh, proprioceptive, visual, and vestibular information more often and maybe improve their function. Mm -hmm. This is anecdotal. I don't have research to support that. I'm drawing on research from a variety of different areas. But I do like your, your point about those transitions because I have found anecdotally as well that sometimes like it's that first closing of the eyes. And then once they sort of get it, then they're kind of solid. And then when they open their eyes, there's almost another disruption. Right. So sometimes I'll do five seconds, open, close, open, close every five seconds for, you know, a little while, a minute or something. Right. Right. You know, that's another thing I, I wanted to bring up was just the influence of kind of whether it's cognitive fatigue, we've actually looked more at kind of muscular fatigue. And I think that potentially that influences people's balance abilities. And what we don't know is how that influences uh, motor learning ability. Mm -hmm. uh, in this last study that we did, there were people that off medication really just had clear indications of fatigue in their performance curves. They were gaining time on the tasks. The reaction time slowed. Interestingly, though, they did all the repetitions and their performance curves looked, their performance looked much worse at the end of practice than it did at the start of practice. So there's definitely a performance decrement. They came back the next day and they had learned. Their mm -hmm. performance was better than when they had started the previous day, which really challenged our assumptions that, that you, should, uh, you should stop when they started demonstrating fatigue. I still don't know what to do with that clinically, uh, and I do think that fatigue plays into decreased performance, and that's relevant from a, a balance standpoint. So maybe increasing endurance helps postural control. But I don't know what 
fatigue does to motor learning and how that would play in. Because I think that's relevant to if we talk about uh, adding practice repetitions, then we have to consider the influence of fatigue. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that is interesting. I mean, it's interesting that they still learned and, you know, it'd be interesting to know, which would be hard to do, but like, could it be that they learn, but not as well as they would if they weren't fatigued? Right. So Lee, you're a super busy guy. Uh, yeah. There's a few things going on. Yeah. And so when you're not working, which, you know, I don't know, a couple hours a week or whatever, what do you <laughs> like to do? Um, so there's a reason that we've stuck in, uh, in Utah. I, I came here to finish my PhD, which is going to be five. It's now been 26, uh, that, uh, it is one of the best places I think in the country uh, alongside Burlington, Vermont, um, as an outdoor recreation, uh, a place to uh, pursue your out outdoor recreation hobbies. So I think, um, I think you would win. Okay. Maybe <laughs> my mountain, my mountains are a little bit taller, so yeah no so like in the winter time skiing um uh and then uh summertime mountain biking uh fly fishing trail running uh doing more yard work around my house than i really want to i know um, because you should be out hiking when you're doing yard work right yeah so um trying to get out get outside and do stuff uh i um threatened to try to learn how to uh uh play an instrument that still hasn't happened it's the thing practice thing i just i don't uh i don't spend enough time practicing i know it's tricky yeah yeah and then um trying to do photography i guess that's another ho hobby like outdoor photography birds and uh, landscapes and things like that oh that's fun yeah. so thanks for joining us for this episode of 4D, a special thanks today to our guest, Dr. Lee Dibble. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think we had a lot of rich, interesting conversation. And um, hopefully we'll have you back on the show at some point in the future. So thank you very much, Lee. Thanks for having me, Parm. I appreciate you asking. And hopefully the listeners find it interesting and helpful, maybe for their clinical practice. Thanks. Thanks again. 4D is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And spread the word about 4D on social media. A special thanks to DDSIG volunteers Chris Burke, Mark DeLellis, Rebecca Summers, and Liz Yates Horton. This episode was edited by Sarah Crandall. Thanks to Jimmy McKay, creator of the PT Pinecast, for providing music. Thanks for listening. That could be a good blooper. All right, everybody's Nobody's here. Nobody's here. Everyone's here. I don't see anybody. We can't see Andy here. I no, I legit don't see anybody, Sarah. You don't see me either. Oh, there or you are. We see you. Okay. Does somebody need to come to your office, help you with the technology? Oh, I don't have my sweet mic cooked up. It could be a motorcycle, I so I should just more, get this camera. I could have more expensive hobbies. I don't know the, uh, our Twitter, I don't even, I don't even know what the words to say, uh, what our Instagram stuff is, what our Twitter stuff is, and uh, for those old people, Facebook, so. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> All right, hang on a second. Hey, Simi, are you on the internet?
<laughs> Are you, can you get off for a little while? Okay. <laughs> I couldn't tell if you were frozen or not. Okay, I'm going to just kind of keep on moving back and forth, okay? <laughs> Although that might be a nice blooper to have the dog come in and squeak or something. <laughs>